Welcome to Refocus, a podcast that helps you find your focus to build a thriving creative career in the music industry. I'm your host, Rosalind Dennett. Hi, and welcome to Refocus. Today, we are having a conversation with the inaugural recipient of the Estal Klein Community Builder Award. The Estelle Klein Award is one of the highest honors given to members of our community by members of our community. And this year, after extensive community consultation about the process of facilitating the award, we decided to add the community builder category to honor folks who are the builders, the agitators, the congregators, the the moving parts that make the retrofitted veggie oil tour van of this music industry go. And I am so excited to introduce you to someone you may already know and love, the inaugural recipient of this year's Estelle Klein Community Builder Award, Tressa Levestor. Tressa is a busy creative who wears many hats with enthusiasm. She is a Juno-nominated songwriter, a seasoned side person, as has self-released four albums over the course of her career as a front person. These days, she's finding fresh inspiration in her work as a community facilitator, program administrator, and arts educator, as well as being an in-demand MC and pop-up choir leader. Tressa helmed the Developing Artist Program at Folk Music Ontario for six years and recently completed a six-year stint at Folk Alliance International. Franco-Ontarian and a proud Hamiltonian and believes strongly in the power of personal expression as an agent of positive change. Please enjoy this conversation with Tressa Levasseur. Hello, Tressa. How are you doing? I am hanging in there. How are you? I'm doing very well. I'm so, so excited to talk with you today. Uh, first of all, congratulations on being the first ever inaugural recipient of the Estelle Klein Community Builder Award. How does that feel? It's a huge honor. I've been nominated for a lot of things in my life. I've never won any of them. And so this feels especially sweet. When I found out, I immediately thought of the day I met Estelle Klein uh, in her home. I went with my pal at the time. still my pal, Trevor Mills. And we had tea with Estelle. And I had no idea who she was. But I had every idea that I loved this fiery spark plug of a human being. And she was outspoken and she was warm and she was opinionated and she was kind. And she kind of held all of those seemingly opposite traits in one frizzy haired shape. And I loved her. And so this is a huge, 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 huge honor. That's so neat. Did you meet her after that? Or like, did you continue on with a, a relationship with Estelle after that? No, that was the one and only time. And I, I feel like she was not long for the world after that. Mm, yeah. I only learned about her work afterwards when I started to become more involved in the folk music community. Amazing. Can we start by doing a, a little time traveling to way back, a little tiny Tressa? I'm wondering what role music had in your life in your childhood when you were when you were a young person did you grow up around a lot of it or was this like a, a choice that you made what were some of the influences this is a great question I guess 
to go really way back, I would not be here if it wasn't for music. My parents met because my father was, at the time that my parents met in 1968, a Catholic priest in Thompson, Manitoba. And my mother signed up on a mission, a Catholic mission, to save the people of Manitoba. I mean, it's so weird. But she was going to save them by being the choir director at the church. And so my dad picked her up at the train station, and that resulted in her making a life and a baby. Me and then my brother. But so that's, it's definitely part of my origin story. It's part of my childhood. I was really sick when I was a baby and like a little toddler. I was in the hospital a lot. And the one thing that I asked my parents to bring me was music, like a little tape recorder with tapes. And then I went to see The Sound of Music. I I feel like all these stories I've told so many times, but I I don't want to discount them. So when I was three, my auntie Marianaka took me to see The Sound of Music at the movie theater. Obviously, Julie Andrews is a huge template for my entire life. And when I came home from that, I swiftly retrieved my Fisher-Price cellophone and began the work of picking up all those tunes by ear and playing them relentlessly for months until my parents purchased a piano, which in retrospect, probably for their own mental health. Um, And that was that. As soon as I had a piano, I was absolutely hooked and played classical, had a little acapella vocal trio in high school. My mom still ran the choir, so I did a lot of choir. I actually accompanied the choir. My mom never let me sing the lead, always made me sing alto, which, you know, at the time, I'm here to tell you, I was super annoyed because I was like, I'm the best singer in here. Why do I always have to send the alto? But in retrospect, thanks, mom, because I have done so much side person playing and harmony singing is such a huge part of my life. And if it wasn't for my mom thinking I was too big for my own britches, I would not have the career that I have. So thanks, mom, for all for marrying a Catholic priest and putting me in my place. That's an incredible origin story. Yep. That's so cool. I didn't I didn't know that story. So thank you for sharing it. How long were you in Manitoba? We lived in Manitoba till I was seven. And then we moved to North Bay, Ontario. It was between Goose Bay, Labrador, and North Bay, Ontario. Mm-hmm. Uh, my for my dad work, you know, it was a transfer. And so we chose North Bay, which was amazing for me because North Bay at that time, you either were like a hockey kid or you were in musical theater, like as a sort of after-school pursuit. That's what it felt like to me anyway. Like there were these these two big themes. Obviously, not a hockey player, so I did musical theater and it was hugely formative for me. I wound up going to theater school, but also doing musical theater for as long as I did really shaped me as a folk musician and really gave me my particular folk superpower, what I believe to be my folk superpower in music, which is leaning into the text of the song and really meaning it, Mm. like really delivering the feeling and the thinking and the emotion and the story of the song. And, you know, it's a natural fit for folk because it's all about connection Mm. and story. Were you aware of folk? music at that time? Like, when did you catch the folk? I think that I always had folk, like, 
in my life and on my mixtapes. And the first CD that I bought was Gordon Lightfoot, followed by Simon and Garfunkel, followed by, oh, in in my first year of university, my res monitor, the poor young woman who had to be responsible for all of these 18 and 19 year olds. She made me a mixtape full of Joni Mitchell. Nice. I was huge into the Indigo Girls. And I mean, they are such a folk band, Mm -hmm. even though... I don't know that people would classify them necessarily as folk, but if you lean into the lyric, like it's all story, it's all, it's political, it's it's everything you want, Ani DeFranco. So I think I was oh, yeah. folk without knowing I was folk. I didn't have mm-hmm. the concept of the the legendary and the, the historical like narratives of Canadian folk, which, not to bring up Trevor Mills again, but I feel like I have to bring up Trevor because Trevor was really, Trevor and Angus really like, and the undesirables, but in a different way. It was Trevor who introduced me to the world of Canadian folk music and who started to like help me understand the who's who of this. And I was jealous of when I started to understand that. Like when I started to know that like Trevor or Evelyn Perry or Kara Loft, like Len Pedalic, that all of these people had parents who had this scene that they had grown up in. And all I had was a Fisher-Price xylophone and The Sound of Music. Like, there was a part of me that was, like, really, like, well, no wonder I'm having a hard time. I mean, I was young. No wonder I'm having a hard time mm-hmm. breaking in. Like, I don't make sense in this world. Like, I felt a little bit like I was knocking on a locked door. But I didn't realize that I was actually knocking on a wall. There there was no door. I was welcome to just walk in. <laughs> it took me a while to figure that out. You were knocking on the beaded curtain. Right? <laughs> like, no wonder. Like, it's not swinging open because it's a beaded curtain. <laughs> Just follow the scent of the patchouli. You'll, you'll get there. Was there a moment where all of a sudden you kind of realized you were you were in it? Like, was there a moment where you're like, oh, this is my community now. I'm, I'm in it. I'm. Yep. Um, I'd been writing songs for a while. I'd still been doing a lot of theater because I went to theater school and was still really involved in the theater people. I was given an accordion by Angus out of the back of his car, like some like some joke. He opened up the trunk. Yeah. Like, I got this banjo and this accordion. Do you guys want this? And Trevor's like, I'll take the banjo. It's like, I'll have the accordion. And around that time, I was playing a lot of cabarets and open mics and whatnot. And I met Corin, who's been just like, I mean, my brother in song. Like, we've played together so much. But... I met him, and then I went to see The Undesirables, and then, I mean, just between you and me and the million people who are listening to or and or watching on YouTube this podcast, <laughs> I developed a really out-of-control crush on both Corin and Sean. And so I volunteered myself and my car and a month of my life to just drive them around uh, on their summer tour up to Red Rock and Ear Falls for a trip fest. And it was that summer. It was that summer when I was, like, doing the merch, but then getting up and singing a tune with them. And then I went to Red Rock and, like, jammed. And, like, my accordion had been unlocking this ability to jam within the theater community. All the carpenters were jammers, and they were teaching me the John Prine songs and the Fred Eagle Smith songs and all that jazz. But it was when I went on tour that summer with, I mean, when I was a tour momager. It's so weird. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I got up to Ear Falls and Manitoba Hall was like, you should play a, few t- a tweener or something like that. And I got up and that was it. I was like fully, fully hooked. 
And I was like, this is what I want to do. I'm going to make a record. I came back. I was like, I'm going to make a record. And my boyfriend at the time was like, why are you wasting your money? You should make a record. And that was my first, like, I had made, I have a secret record from before. Not oh. under my own name. Oh, and it's not on none of the services. Mm-hmm. I made 300 CD copies. Probably the listenership of this podcast has most of them. Um, and, uh, but that was funk music. Like funk, mm-hmm. neo-soul, another life of cool. mine. Uh, and then I made Not A Straight Line. And it really like just opened up so many doors for me. I went to Folk Alliance. I went to Folk Music Ontario for the first time. And uh, that was it. Once I entered the world of like the folk music conference and the late night rooms and the jam culture and the web of friendship and colleagueship. Um, mm. I just wanted more. I just wanted to play with everyone and be with everyone and do all the things, volunteer, like just be at folk festivals all the time, be in the kids area, be at the merch. Mm-hmm. It didn't matter to me actually. It was just such a cool hang. So many actors in my life before that, right? And so entering into the world of, like, musicians, I was like, oh, wow, everyone here is so much cooler. And, well, no shame on actors, but, like, they love to listen to me. I'm an actor. I'm talking about myself. You don't even have to ask me any questions. But, yeah, it was just such a cool world. Somebody asked me at some point recently, like, oh, why do you why do you like conferences or why do you like FMO or, or these types of conferences? And it's like, the hang is so good. <laughs> Even if I had nothing to, to accomplish there, like it's a community gathering and it's the hang that kind of draws you in and holds you there. And if you'll allow me to say, it, it truly did in, in many ways because you then end up working for both FMO and Folk Alliance in different types of roles. I believe FMO came first in that. Yeah, first I officially showcased at both. And did that whole thing and like dragged my giant mannequin around and was like <laughs> an artist, right? Okay, let's back up. To, let's explain the giant mannequin. Okay, so I had this giant mannequin <laughs> um, that was like, this was in the cowboy days before there were so many regulations about how to promote yourself. And before the organizations were really monetizing advertising by artists. Mm-hmm. And so it was all just a bit looser. And by a bit, I mean like, a lot. It was all a lot looser. Uh, and so I had this, I really didn't like the posters. It just seemed so wasteful mm-hmm. to me. And this was 2006. So I bought myself a mannequin, a full-size mannequin, and ha- bought a wig and had it cut exactly the same as my hair and toted it around the conference. I think she debuted in the U.S. And the Americans loved her because she's so over the top. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Kaya Cater and her pal, Emily, both of whom went through the Developing Artists Program, formerly known as mm-hmm. the Youth Mentorship Program, um, mm-hmm. they actually dressed her and moved her in the hotel every evening. Amazing. And she had like a little whiteboard with my shows on it. And she wore my friend's t-shirts. And she was like, people still talk about it. People are like, oh, you're the mannequin girl. Like, that was, in fact, like, close to 20 years ago. But yes, yes, I was. Um, And the FMO official that I did was, it just, it was responsible for launching my career and getting me an agent. And I think I played 10 festivals that summer, like, main stages. Stages I had no business playing yet. (laughs) And I did that cycle for a while. But even though... When I had initially gone to the conferences, I thought that was the fit for me. Mm-hmm. It wasn't quite it. 
And I think for me, the reason was because I have, well, it's the reason why I'm no longer touring. It's so difficult to feel like you're in service of community when you spend so much time serving yourself. And I, and I don't mean that in like that. I'm, I want to be very clear about that. The promotion machine part of it for me was exactly the reason I couldn't be an actor. I didn't want to be an actor. And it felt exhausting to me to do that. And I admire people like Corin, for example, or John Muirhead. There's a great example. There's a guy who like derives energy from figuring out ways to connect with people via his music. Not that just the show. If it was all just the show, I'd be aces. I wouldn't have stopped. But like the salesmanship, it's a special skill set. And it's a skill set mm-hmm. that I don't have. I'm not a salesperson. I, I just makes me, I'm getting sweaty armpits just talking about it. <laughs> um, and so that phase led into the phase where I much prefer to be a side person and mm. attend these and just play tons of shows and be a side person and then that led into I mentored I think I mentored three times in the program and then Jill's mud was leaving the program and said would you like to take it over and I was like would I (laughs) I have so many ideas (laughs) and that was then I was doing um what came to be known as that program yeah and and for a while too I think six years yeah six years like it was and you've seen some incredible artists. You mentioned Kaya. You mentioned John. Annie Sumi, Tragedy Ann. Like, the list just goes to Mia Kelly. Like, the list is is really extensive. And I could list every single person, Cassidy Houston, and the people who came to be mentors. That was a big passion for me, doing that program, was mm-hmm. reaching beyond the folks who'd done it three times. <laughs> and into areas of the industry where I wanted those people to be part of our community. Hmm. And I wanted them to like, not just come and showcase, but like be part of the community and like asking people, like I asked Julian Taylor to be a mentor because I liked his music. The end. Mm-hmm. Same as I, like I asked those guys to just come and do it because I was a fan and because there was something about what they were doing that felt like it was the right fit for the program. Mm-hmm. And that was really fun. That was such a great curatorial honor to put together these groups of people. Those are some real gentle souls and like really kind folks that you found and, and curated to be working with people that are, you know, probably their first time attending any sort of event like this. And it means a lot that you put so much intention behind that curation Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it was a big and sacred part of that gig for me like there were a couple fails there were a couple people that are wonderful songwriters and just not cut out for contemporary mentorship who might have been great mentors in a different time for let's say if they were mentoring gen x that would have been perfect but Mm. the millennials and the gen z's have different needs and different approaches and it's a different world and yeah it was a real growth experience for me and I looking at that list of people and thinking about like 
how much they shared their knowledge, like how bringing back people who've been in the program before, Benishi Quay, Kaya again, mm-hmm. or bringing in like, like Ray Spoon came. Like, that's amazing. Ray's just an incredible artist and came and involved themselves in our community in a way that was really deep. Janice Jolie, mm-hmm. like all mm-hmm. of these people that are very special to me as humans. And I feel honored to have spent time with them and to have grown the program and to have had enough trust placed in the program and the people around it that we could also from within criticize the program and mm, and yeah. work towards making it more mindful more authentically invitational mm-hmm. less extractive yeah it was hard to let it go but I turned 50 this year, and I, I really think that a youth program should be youth-driven, mm-hmm. even in the leadership of mm-hmm. it. Not that, not that I'm saying, like, dismiss the elders, not at all, but more that relinquishing a curatorial position before mm-hmm. you're kicked out. Like, I wish more people in our business did that. I really yeah. do. And this is a tip of the hat. Liz Scott, you did an awesome job at Mariposa. And I'm very mm. proud to have participated in uh, your programming there. And I was also very admiring of you making way at Super mm. out of Canmore. Like, good job. Uh, and I encourage other people who've been in their jobs for a super long time to really deeply consider succession as not an end of the road thing, but as a new thread in the braid. Mm. Reinvention, rejuvenation, or revitalization of our, our ecology. That's gorgeous. I want to amplify that <laughs> message. That's I feel like that maybe doesn't get talked about too much, you know? Well, who's gonna talk about it? Yeah. Like like not an artist, mm. not someone who wants those gigs. And not uh, someone who wants those presenters to come to their event. So who's going to talk about it? Loudmouths like me and Estelle Klein. <laughs> oh, here, here. <laughs> um, let's talk about some of the some of the other cool gigs you've done because when we're talking about community building, uh, you've done like a ton of education work and, and stuff in schools and through Ontario Arts Council. You did some. Some incredible programs. I've done a lot of uh, arts education work. I had a business for 20 years. That was called Sing, Move, Play, uh, in which I went to wealthy people's houses in Toronto and sung songs to their babies in their basements. I did Stories Come Alive, which was a kindergarten program through the Ontario Arts Council that wove in stories and music and interactive. It was a very bananas program. I saw so many kindy kids in, here in Hamilton. Uh, I did the RB program. I, I, w- mm-hmm. I went to out and did community stuff with that and lots of kids, lots of kids parades and lots of Bokuja festivals. And I still work in education. I'm doing a cross Canada project with uh, the art gallery of Hamilton, uh, which is a remote arts teaching program. I'm going to do some songwriting and some podcasting um, mm-hmm. classes with, students who are in one room school rooms or who live super remotely and who don't have the opportunity for artists to visit their classrooms in person. And that's a big passion of mine. I did a puppet project Mm -hmm. throughout the whole pandemic online. Thousands of kids made garbage puppets and then we acted them out. 
I've done a podcast for um, AIM, Artists in Motion. I did an art podcast and had the great honor of interviewing nine or ten artists for that. That was really great. Like, learned so much about people who've always been kind of road pals, but that I hadn't done the deep dive with. Um, and I worked at Focalance. Uh, I just finished a six-year tenure there in a huge number of roles, a vast number of different roles. And that was again, like a really big honor for me to work for an organization that had meant so much to me and that really shaped my, the direction of my life as an artist to then sort of participate in a very different way and uh, work with some colleagues in the States to establish some programming and lots of work on the Cultural Equity Council there. And, you know, working, working there through the pandemic was, uh, yeah, it was like being on a real big ship in real stormy waters. Hmm. And suddenly they're like, oh, you thought you were the games lady? Nope. Get <laughs> in this engine room immediately. <laughs> and uh, it really brought me through. And, hmm. um, but it was time for me to go. It was time for me to step aside hmm. and let somebody else do do the curation of those conversations. Okay, we were speaking to Angus recently, and he, he had mentioned that when the folks at Vocal Lions first mentioned wanting to hire a community programming person, he said immediately, without a doubt, Tressa was like the the name that was community and Tressa. Or Interesting. Well, my first job there was called Canadian Representative. Cool. Um, <laughs> and it had been Anna Mira's job, and Anna went on mm-hmm. mat leave, and the conference was coming to Canada. And so Angus was like, do you want to do this? It's basically like touching base with everybody in Canada, making sure they all come, making sure they all feel welcome, making sure their voices are heard, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yes, this sounds good for me. And then after I did that, at the end of the Montreal conference, I actually said to Angus, this is not a job. This is a bad mm-hmm. title. Here's the title, Outreach and Community. And um, he was like, yes, that's correct. And that's, that's, that's how it went. But the job was a community Back, job from the beginning. Yeah. yeah. And then did it change when you were doing that focused on like the conference being in, in the States versus like when it was? Oh, for um, sure. Yeah. For sure. There's a lot more cold calling and yeah, like the, the job changed into outreach. And so that was just le- like learning about the, presenter ecology of the states and the various conferences that they have and who's where and who does what and like spreadsheets of a thousand names of festivals and emailing them all to get them to come and doing mentorship program and doing one-on-one meetings and all of that jazz and supporting um in 2018 supporting Cindy Cogbill as she did programming there. In 2019 supporting Amy Terrian as she did programming there. In 2021 supporting Michelle Conceison as she did programming. And then finally stepping into programming myself. Mm. Thank God I studied with those three experts uh, to be able to do. Because it's a big, big job. And it's interesting. It's an interesting job because, again, it's quite curatorial. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that Folk Alliance is all about the showcases. I get it. But also, when you're programming the panels, it's actually all about the panels to you. Mm-hmm. And so there is a really strong curatorial aspect to that, which I took very seriously. Mm-hmm. And I think in my tenure, the focus really for me was on 
community building and equity. As soon as the pandemic started, like, you know, things really shifted. And Mm -hmm. the discussion in the States around anti-Black racism and anti-Black racism within the folk music community, the ways in which we failed the community of New Orleans, in particular, Black Mm -hmm. culture bearers in New Orleans, when we took our conference there, and the reparations, in my estimation, that needed to be made Hmm. for that slight, really informed how I wanted to program, whose ideas I wanted to lift up and take from idea into actuality, and whose I was like, maybe 2023. Like, love that idea, great idea, but not this year. There was a, a huge Black Music Summit at Folk Alliance. Black American Music Summit, BAMS. I love me an acronym. Wait, so was that was that part of your programming? So a lot of my programming, a lot of magic that I have been credited for has been wrongly credited because mainly what I do is be like, that's an amazing idea, let's do it. Let me get a spreadsheet right chart started. Let me call some folks. What do you need? Let me get that for you. Let me... Let me, what you've been forgotten, let me do that. So it was actually Lily Lewis's idea. And Lily came to us in just after the murder of George Floyd to suggest that we should have a program within Focal Alliance called Committing to Conversation, in which we had mm-hmm. small scale dis- discussions of racial injustice and racial inequity within the folk music community, with people mm-hmm. in the folk com- community, facilitated by folks in the folk community to start to really talk about difficult things together and to practice talking about hard things together. And at that time, I was starting to put together what would become the Centering Disability in the Music Industry Summit. And that was based Mm -hmm. on our inability to get that to really happen in 2020 in New Orleans. Because big, difficult conversations always should start first, not be the last thing you put in place. And this is something that I've learned a lot is like when you're populating a panel or a a festival lineup, listen to me again, festival directors, uh, but you're doing a good job in Canada. Never mind. Mm -hmm. You actually want to start with like, who has never been on the stage? Who is underrepresented? What groups of folks are underrepresented on the stage? Put them in first. Then you will not run out of time or run into people not being available or not trusting you. And so we started that program committed to conversation in June. It ran a year and a half, every two weeks. And then every month we had conversations, six people and a facilitator and me. I went to every single one of them except three. Did a lot of crying, did a lot of reckoning. Mm. Out of that came a continuing the conversation. Out of that, and so early in that, when I was talking with Lily about the beginnings of putting together the disability summit, she was like, we should do a black American music summit. And I was like, done. And I did not have the authority to say that. (laughs) I will talk to Angus, but it's, it's a done deal. Let's go. And so it took a year and a half to really put that together. And my role in putting that together was really like, this is the money we need. This is the room we need. What do you need? You need a list of people. Great. You need that. What, what do you need? And then building panels around that to support that so that the conversation about the Black experience within the music industry, but within folk music, was not only happening in a closed door room, which mm-hmm. was the request of the summit organizers, but also was happening multiple times throughout the conference in other discussions 
so that it really felt like. And you know, Lily actually, I I want to say that it for her the idea came when she felt in Montreal the power of the International Indigenous Music Summit that happened mm-hmm. on a similar model. This is an idea that was brought to Folk Alliance by Shoshona. And um, it was really Folk Alliance's job to do the lifting mm-hmm. and not the dreaming. It was to be like, what's the dream? Let's make it happen. What do you need? Here's how we'll do it. Mm. And so I'm, I'm excited to see what's coming next at Folk Alliance. There's been a couple of ideas come down the pipeline that I'd like to see happen, but mm-hmm. it's going to be a surprise for me too, folks. I don't know. <laughs> Not on the Slack anymore. Don't have the intel. It's exciting to hear about the ways that you've facilitated those projects and those dreams to happen. And then to see the legacy of them too, like the International Indigenous Music Summit had their standalone conference this year. And it was neat to acknowledge that it had first taken place at that Folk Alliance and cool that that you're a part of that story. Yeah, I mean, really quite sideways to it, in a way. Like, mm-hmm. that was really Angus's baby, the Indigenous Music Summit, both mm-hmm. years, like, in Montreal and in New Orleans. Um, that was a- mainly Angus that was doing that. And then um, the Disability Summit, I would say, for me, was the first one for, for me where I was really, like, worked hard on it. And it's such an area where, I mean, it's pretty sad, like, music industry we are so far behind the theater and dance people on this we need to Mm. get our act together because why disability is the one club that you can just become a part of all of a sudden anybody can (laughs) Mm -hmm. so many more people are living with disability and its attendant limitations and challenges than we are aware of it's not that hard and if anybody's going to really do it, like, folk people should do it first. Come on. Uh, I really think we need to be having that conversation in Canada. And yeah. uh, perhaps, I shall say to you, Rosalind Dennett, hmm. that not this year, but perhaps next year, we should consider what might happen at Folk Music Ontario around yeah. many convening, around this discussion, a suite of conversations around wh- what we've done, not just one panel. Like a, yeah. some action points, calls calls to action. Maybe you've already done it, and I'm just ignorant of that. But no, that's a it's a wonderful thing to bring up, and I very much welcome getting that conversation started because it, it is like a, a very interesting looking through the lens as well of like Ontario and what Ontario specifically has done to make places more accessible. There was a huge push for for accessible venues that all venues had to be accessible, I think, by 2025. I don't know if that goal is going to be met with the rate that things are going. And so, yeah, maybe it's maybe 2024 is a, a very timely conversation. Yeah, and it, there's so many points of access there too, right? Like there's like, what's the disability representation on your boards? Mm-hmm. What's the disability representation in your volunteer core? And how do you make that volunteering piece like enticing? Mm-hmm. And it's beyond like ramps. Like, what do your reg forms look like? What about service animals? What about mm-hmm. neurodivergence and stimulus? Mm-hmm. What about like there's so, there's so many points. Uh, I think that's probably why people become overwhelmed. People in positions of organizing become overwhelmed because where do you even like? Once you're like, I'm committed to the the, the it's never ending. It's Sisyphean. Yeah, but. 
also it's people. It's an interesting point. And I, I think it, where do you start? I mean, you just start. That's <laughs> you just it. Start. That's it. Where do you start? You <laughs> and, just start. And we were talking about that with, with our climate action this year and, you know, just kind of a similar thing where sometimes when you start digging down, it's, well, we could also, well, we could also do this. We could also do this. I'm like, well, why don't we just pick one? Start there <laughs> and then mm-hmm. keep going. There's always ways that we'll be able to improve. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, and just like any, any practice, the more you do it, the more limber you become. And the easier mm-hmm. it is to do the next thing and the next thing. Or the more inspiring it is for people to come on board when there's a little bit of a momentum. No one really wants to push that rock by themselves from the bottom. But when you're like halfway up and someone's shooting it on the iPhone, you're going to see a lot more people volunteering to help you get it up that last <laughs> bit. Yeah. Well, actually, that's, that's a nice metaphor because I, I wanted to ask, speaking of trying to push rocks by yourself, are there any like folks that you wanted to shout out that have been... Uh, fellow rock pushers that have helped you get places you're going or just some some comrades that have been there along the way in your community building journey? I'd like to shout out, I mean, there's so many people and there's people that I've already mentioned in this conversation, um, Angus, Trevor, Janice Jolie, I'm in constant admiration, all the participants of the DAP program, and in particular, the participants of DAP who stayed aboard. And there was a lot when I first came aboard with DAP, there was no internal DAP structure within which former particip- youth participants were then volunteering, building programming, running workshops, running the private show. Like, they did so much. They were such willing community builders. They wanted more. Like, there was a certain subgroup of that, that every and every year new folks Mm -hmm. who wanted more than just that experience. Every year there were people who were like, thank you for the experience and goodbye forever. But (laughs) I'd like to thank Brandon Phelan and Liv Cazola, John Mm -hmm. Muirhead, Sarah Goujon, Cassidy Houston, Greg Smith, Anita Cazola, Sam Beer, who did not participate in the program, but might as well have (laughs) uh, because he's still around so much. I know I'm forgetting people. Kit Paulson, uh, people who you can see in the photos they, that mm-hmm. uh, year over year how the the cohort gets bigger and bigger, all the mentors. And also, I think I'd like to thank people within our community who trusted me enough to have conversations with me about the damage that our community was doing. Our community was doing damage because our community was operating in a default perspective. So mm. I can remember very, very clearly a conversation that I had with Kaya Cater in Kansas City at the 2018 conference. That same year, I had a, a deep conversation with Brian Kobayakawa about mm. the racism and the lack of inclusion within our community. And it, those really, really fired me up. I think actually with Brian, it might have been 2017. I think it was before I was mm. on staff. Uh, but it's really stuck with me. Him, of all people, Creaking Tree String Quartet, like every friggin' band mm-hmm. in the whole place being like, I have never felt like I belonged here. And I was like, oh my God, what? <laughs> like it, and I, that was such a fundamental shift for me. It made me mm-hmm. understand how, how much more there was for me to do within our community 
Leonard Sumner, he definitely mm-hmm. was not shy <laughs> about critiquing the DAP program, actually, mm-hmm. and me personally. And um, it was really hard to take, but it really was a sign of respect, actually. And I feel very, mm-hmm. very, very grateful. Rachel Baraka, she had a couple mm-hmm. of real hard conversations with me. So I think anyone who wants to have a hard conversation with me, I invite it. And I'm grateful for Mm. those opportunities to deepen the dialogue and Mm. uh, hone the vision for a better community that is thematically at the heart of so much folk music. Mm -hmm. That's such a great lesson to pull from that. I, in turn, like at some point wanted to mention just thanks to you for having, I feel like you've had conversations with me too, or at least been like, why'd you do that? (laughs) I saw that panel that got put together. What are you doing? (laughs) And uh, yeah, I always. Conflict is my love language. No, I'm just kidding. Oh my God. But that is like, if I'm doing that to you also, please know that that's because I respect you. I would never say anything if I didn't. And in turn, I know that I have thrown things your way every once in a while because I'm like, this is a person that is just in my mind, the most capable human of doing anything. So that's like half of like a compliment and an apology. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for (laughs) apology. Thank you for having my back. And there are not many people that I could throw into a room of festival organizers and programmers and be like, hey, Tressa, can you, can you just moderate this thing? I'll tell you what it's about later. Mm. So yes, th- uh, thank you. I'm sorry. And I'm wondering if we can maybe like speak directly right now to those folks that are coming into the industry and, and coming up and, you know, just like a little piece of, of advice or just a little message for folks that are new to this community or, or people that are just starting out in their career in in folk music or in in music in general or in creative passions? No pressure. Yeah. For those folks who are coming to folk music world, I would say the community and the industry are not the same thing. And you can give your mind and your energy to the industry And even, arguably, your body, because it sure is tiring touring. So do it while you can. But save your heart for the community. And never forget that it's the community that has your heart. Like, it will hold it for you. And it doesn't look like what you think or what the industry thinks a career looks like. You belong in our community just because you are a person. And ambition is great. It's fine. It's good. But love is the key to a life well lived. And you will find that in the most beautiful and surprising places. And if you don't feel like you're finding love or belonging in our community, please find me. I will do my best to hold your hand and help you find me or another friend. I feel like I'm seeing in my mind's eye the block parent sign. You know the block sign from the 70s and 80s that was in people's windows? Where, like, you could mm-hmm. knock on that door and that person would help you find your parents. So that would be my advice. And my, my conference advice for everyone, and I know there's not really private showcases this year, but there are off-campus 
spotlight, I don't know what y'all are calling them, is when you walk into that room and there's like two people there, stay. One time in the weekend, stay for the whole set where there's two people. That is your act of service to the community. And the gifts you give are the gifts you receive. Those are incredible words and beautiful nuggets of advice. Thank you so much, Dressa. And I cannot think of a, a more deserving and beautiful human to be honored with the uh, inaugural Estel Klein Community Builder. Thank you. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. Well, thank you. It was such a pleasure talking at you for one hour. (laughs) 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 Uh, Thanks, Rosalind. That's it for this episode of Refocus. Please subscribe, rate, and review on the podcast app of your choice so you never miss an episode. For more information, you can visit us at folkmusicontario.org and follow us on social media at Folk Music Ontario. Thank you.